So here we are on Trinity Sunday. Um, it's the last high feast of the year. We enter a new half of the church year called Trinity Tide, sometimes called Pentecost. I like Trinity Tide better um, because Trinity Tide focuses on the work of the Trinity within us, within us, through the Holy Spirit. And I'll warn you, today is a meaty sermon uh, and a lengthy one. So gear up. Gear up, friends. We're going to talk about um, some theological realities uh, as I've been learning, actually, a little bit more this week about how the Holy Spirit works in us, right? And so on Pentecost, we heard the story of Acts chapter 2, and we remember that the, the main point was that the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus to his disciples is fulfilled, right? That promise is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit, the main point is that he comes and he indwells us as baptized believers. In the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, we in the Anglican tradition believe that the Holy Spirit is imparted into us. That means he's given, that he's in you. And that's God's doing of nothing that we can do. It's his doing completely. It's like an injection, if you will, to use a crude analogy. He's in you. And in, whole, and in holy confirmation, there's a continual pouring out of the Holy Spirit to equip you to do the work of ministry that Jesus has called you to do. I won't get too much into it because it's another sermon, but that's why we baptize infants, because it doesn't make any sense to call them to follow God without having the ability to do so. And so the highest gift that God gives us is the Holy Spirit, His very self. And with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes things that are gifts of God. It's important to understand these things are not virtues. They are not things that you can train yourself to do, like lifting or, or running. It's not the spiritual equivalent of that. Although, the more we use them, the stronger they become. But rather, they are things given to us, poured into us by the Holy Spirit as graces. Graces bestowed upon which we must then act. Okay? So, a quote from Bishop and Anglican theologian Jeremy Taylor, who wrote in the 17th century about this. He says this. He says that we, as baptized Christians, are a new mass, new creatures, redeemed with the blood of Christ, rescued from an evil portion, and made candidates of heaven and immortality. But we are but an embryo in the regeneration until the Spirit of God enlivens us and moves again upon the waters. He helps us in our infirmities. He gives us all our strengths. He reveals mysteries to us and teaches us all our duties. He stirs us up to holy desires, and he actuates those desires. He makes us to do and to, to do the will 
of his good pleasure. What the good bishop and theologian is getting at here with that very technical language is that too often Christians think about baptism and the coming of the Holy Spirit as a remodeling project, you know? You might remodel your kitchen. Um, There's some, like, down-to-the-stud remodels, right, where you'd go deeper. But most of the time, remodeling is a superficial thing. It's, It's, you know, doing a paint job or maybe putting in some new cabinetry or a new countertop. But what the bishop here is saying is that the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He does something much more. He digs down to the very foundations of your soul, the very bottom, the footers, if you will, to follow that analogy of a house, right? The footers, the very foundation of your being. And he repours and rechanges, he changes, rather, that very foundation. You see, the remodeling's not enough. If he's just remodeling you, right, if he's just giving you new instructions, your heart is still wicked, and you can't accomplish those things. But rather, in God's love, by his grace, we are restructured from the very bottom of our very selves. That's why Jesus says today, you must be born again, right? Not not you, you must have a change of heart or... You must have a change of mind, although repentance is important, but you must be born again from the very beginning, from the very core of who you are, as if you were being born again afresh. The gift of the Holy Spirit is traditionally said to have four objectives for the new Christian. Number one, regeneration. Number two, remission or forgiveness. Number three, justification. To stand justified before God. And number four, sanctification. To become holy. Those are the four goals of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the first one today, regeneration. What is regeneration? Well, we see the result of it in Acts chapter 2. The remaking of St. Peter. As we talked about last week, from the man who abandons Christ because he can't help himself, who is not at the cross, to the man we saw in Acts chapter 2 proclaiming with firmness the reality of who Jesus is, and people responding saying, please baptize us. You see, you've never been what God created you to be before baptism. From the beginning, since Adam and Eve, each one of us was defective so to speak, flawed to our deepest and barred from attaining the fullness of humanity. Jesus is the exception to this. He sends his Holy Spirit not just to save us, but to change us, to transform us, to renew and regenerate us. And a crucial part of this rebuilding can be found in Isaiah chapter 11, that canticle that we read both last week, And this week. Look with me, if you will, at it. Isaiah chapter 11. There's selections from it in this canticle. It's on page 5 in your bulletin. And you heard, some of you heard this last week. There's seven gifts outlined in this canticle in the Old Testament about the Spirit of God. 
It's fulfilled when Jesus is baptized because Jesus is the, the ultimate receiver of these gifts. But in that reception, he conveys these things to us. Verse 3 in that canticle, or verse 2 in that canticle, And the Spirit of God shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Those aren't just nice things. They're real things. They're gifts. They're gifts. They're effectual things, things that change us. Four of them are of the intellect, and three of them are of the will and affections. So the first four, wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, or discernment. And the last three, might, fortitude, sometimes called fortitude, rather, might, Godliness, sometimes called holy piety and fear. These are the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit given for us to be renewed, to be fortified against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Notice again what Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Greek word here is eido, to see or perceive. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, you can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone get into it, unless you've been born again. You can't even see it, you can't even comprehend it, you can't even look at it properly without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And so what Christ says to Nicodemus Chrysostom, the great preacher writes is something like this if you are not born again if you do not share in the spirit that comes through the washing of regeneration everything you think about will be from a human point of view and not a spiritual one everything you think about about it will be from a human point of view and not a spiritual one so you see it's crucial to be born again Jesus also says that unless one's born again or regenerate, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Further, in John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And the kingdom of God is of the Spirit. Regeneration is about being born of the Spirit. Jesus here is talking about holy baptism and the beginning of the Christian walk in the church. And with that Holy Spirit comes these seven, this sevenfold gift, these seven faculties of the soul that the soul was defective of and did not have beforehand. The first of which is wisdom. What is human wisdom? Well, human wisdom is the applying of knowledge in light of experience, right? The great pre-Christ Greek philosopher Aristotle said that the definition of wisdom is to consider the highest cause, the greatest purpose or end of a thing. This is because all other things are subject to it. Now, what's that mean? 
It means that you have to understand your priorities in line with the greatest good. Right? It's more than philosophical uh, talk. You actually do this every day. Why do you not go after work or after everything that you do one day to the ice cream store? You could. You probably have the money, right? Maybe you don't. But you could go to the ice cream store and eat a cone of ice cream every day. Some of us are tempted to do that more than others, right? But you don't. We would call such a man unwise. Why? Because while the momentary fulfillment of having ice cream is a good, it's a fulfillment of an appetite, it's actually a lesser good than other goods in your life, right? If you did that every day, you'd become fat and unhealthy. And that's bad. Why is that bad? Ultimately, because you were made by God to be healthy and to be active in Him. And so you see those, those, those ends become subject. And, and you do this every day. You say, I will not do this because this good is greater and this good is the greatest. Right? You order your life in this way. That's wisdom in being applied. Jesus speaks of this kind of wisdom in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 through 46, he says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he's found one of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's Matthew 13, 45 and 46. What's Jesus' point there? That the kingdom of God is the most important thing in life. And it's like that great pearl, and a wise investor, if he sees a good investment, will go and he'll sell all of his lesser investments to get the thing that's going to continually give dividends. To give the thing that's going to continually increase for him. That's wise. Right? So it is in spiritual life. The man who's wise puts the premium on the most important things. When we typically think about wisdom, we think of people gaining it by experience, and that's the natural way. It's true. Generally speaking, we gain experience, and that helps us become wiser. We've all known people who are really intelligent, but they're fools, because they don't have wisdom, because they can't apply it. There's a whole section of the Bible, it's called wisdom literature, we see examples throughout the Bible of this human wisdom, but there is a divine wisdom throughout Scripture too, a gift that's given even in the Old Testament. For example, Joshua is given this gift in Deuteronomy 34. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid hands on him. And King Solomon, of course, perhaps the most famous wise man, First uh, Kings chapter 4, verse 29, we read, God gave Solomon wisdom and great insight and a breadth of understanding as measurement as the sand on the seashore. And of course, Proverbs, you've probably heard this one, Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You see, it's all over Scripture. 
that not only is wisdom something attained humanly, but it's something given by God. And with baptism, you, friends, are given this divine wisdom, though you might not know it. You are given this gift to clearly judge things, to discriminate objectively between what is true and what is false. That's holy wisdom. Secondly, the second gift, understanding. It's closely related to wisdom. The gift of understanding. How is it different than wisdom, though? Well, wisdom is perception. It's looking at things from, from 20,000 feet. Understanding is intimate knowledge of something. It's a close knowledge. It's looking at it under the microscope. St. Thomas Aquinas writes that the Latin word for understanding, intelligere, is a compound of intus and legere, to read inwardly. So the gift of understanding is to get to the very heart of something, to penetrate the hiddenness. There is a pre-Pentecost example of this when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story in Luke's Gospel? Jesus is on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, and he's been raised from the dead. But the apostles that are on the road don't know that. They're leaving Jerusalem. And he appears to them on the road. And in Luke 24 it says that he explains to them everything that's in the scriptures as he's walking next to them. That's the image of understanding that scripture gives to us, right? Jesus walking next to them. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the gift of understanding, to get at the heart of something. And it's a divine gift. It's something, again, the Holy Spirit pours out upon us. St. Paul speaks of this gift also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he writes to the church, For the Spirit searches everything, even to the depths of God. That language is very intentional, even to the depths of God, to the inmost part of him. For who knows, St. Paul continues, a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So if you're having a hard time understanding something about the faith or scripture, the nature of God, or how to apply it, simply ask the Holy Spirit, friends. He'll give you the answer if it's proper that you have it. Now, he might not disclose to you everything, because that's not proper, but it doesn't hurt for us to ask, to have this gift of understanding more fully in Bible studies, in personal devotions. It's how God acts in the councils of the church. It's how we get the creeds. That's the Holy Spirit giving understanding. <coughs> the next gift, the gift of counsel. So we've spoken about holy wisdom, which is that perception and understanding, which is inward knowledge. What is counsel? Well, counsel is a supernatural version 
of the human virtue, which you may have heard of before, but maybe not, of prudence. You ever heard of the word prudence? If you haven't, I'm not surprised. Our culture stinks at it. To be prudent is to have right judgment in particular circumstances, to apply wisdom, often restraint. Just like wisdom, prudence has a perspective, but it deals with moral action instead of thought, with saying or doing something or abstaining because of a risk. For example, while one might have every right to express his opinion in a meeting, it may be more prudent to keep silent in his opinion. We've probably all been at those contentious meetings at one point or another, either with other students or in the office, where people just go on chattering, right? And everyone's shouting their opinion, and everybody wants their will to be done. But there's the quiet man or woman sitting over in the corner. And finally, people ask him or her, what's your opinion? And he quietly says a few words, and it's more wise than the last 15 minutes of chattering that's going on. That man is prudent. He speaks louder because he speaks less. Prudence. And the Holy Spirit, the holy version of that from the Holy Spirit, is not called prudence. It's called counsel. Counsel. Because it comes from God. And you know what? God knows all circumstances far more than we do. And so, of course, it perfects prudence. God's counsel is the perfect type of prudence. Because he takes into account what everyone's going to think, what everyone's going to feel, what everyone's going to, you know, react. Jesus foresees the need for this gift for his disciples when he tells them that he's not going to leave them as orphans. And in Matthew 10, he tells them about this gift of counsel. This is chapter 10, verse 19. When they deliver you over, says Jesus, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say has been given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Boy, if you can tap into that, nothing can come against you. Nothing can come against you. The gift of counsel from the Holy Spirit is necessary for the kingdom of God to go forth and flourish. The gift of knowledge is the next gift, sometimes called discernment. That's the last of the intellectual gifts. Uh, the Greek word is epigasis. It's correct knowledge of things ethical. This gift is closely tied to counsel because it deals with discerning the truth for the sake of daily moral choices as opposed to just knowing the truth for truth's sake. It's the gift of distinguishing between good and evil, this gift of knowledge. It's the gift that Satan improperly tempts Eve with in the Garden of Eden, notice. Did you ever put that together? Adam and Eve are tempted with the gift of knowledge, but improperly so, because 
this gift of knowledge is only suitable for Jesus and his dispersal through the Holy Spirit to us. So this knowledge or understanding cannot be taken, but must be received as a gift, something given to truly please God. St. Paul writes to the Philippian church, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, there's the ethical, moral component, that you may be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. St. Paul prays this for the church because we so desperately need it. It is the word of God through his spirit. This knowledge didn't properly come to us, but through Jesus. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 this. You've all heard this passage, I'm sure. Chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Too often I hear this passage quoted, just the first half of it, about the Bible. And, you know, it is about the Bible, but only by extension. The real point of this passage is that Jesus, the living word of God, is the one who has this pure discernment. He is the one, like the two-edged sword, that divides spirit and soul and marrow and joint and discerns the hearts of men. And so, in him, we have this gift of knowledge and understanding. Again, these first four intellectual gifts are given to us by the Holy Spirit so that we might grasp the faith, so that we might more fully understand and be able to follow Jesus. But whereas the first four are about that, the last three are about governing, governing ourselves in the Spirit. They're about adhering to the faith. And so let's press on to number five. Someone can know the truth, but if he does know the truth and has no strength, he'll quickly lose it. The Christian needs might or fortitude. Now, again, there's a human version of might or fortitude. It's naturally built up. Sometimes we call it courage. We see it in great heroes. We see it in some soldiers and some who are emergency workers, people who risk their lives courageously for something greater than themselves. But there is a divine version of this, too. It's called fortitude, and St. Thomas Aquinas puts it best when he says that Fortitude or might is firmness of mind required in doing good and in enduring evil. Required in doing good and in enduring evil. This makes complete sense. It's not giving up your beliefs just because your beliefs are unpopular or difficult. St. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 16, verse 10, 
finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Ordinary human fortitude can be very powerful, but ultimately a supernatural fortitude is necessary for the Christian because we are called to supernatural things in the kingdom of God, not ordinary ones. Notice the emphasis, though, that Paul gives on that verse is his might, not your own. The Christian has to believe ultimately that it's in God's power and might. And in God's power and might, he or she is completely secure and completely safe. What can the world do to you? What can anything in this world do to you if God has said you are safe? You're mine in my might. And the fact is that we are battling not just with flesh and blood as Christians. You've all read about the armor of God in the book of Ephesians, right? That we battle not against flesh and blood. But what is this might that the Holy Spirit gives? It's the might of God's power and understanding that within you is eternal life. It's what St. Peter has with boldness. It's what St. Stephen, the first martyr, has with boldness. As they are picking up stones to throw at him in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. In any lesser situation, we might have might also. Think of situations that put you in jeopardy. Perhaps... It takes fortitude to stand up for your beliefs today. It always has and always will because the world comes against us. But think about in the office place. It takes fortitude now just to assert that there are two genders, not a rainbow of them. That God created man, male, and female in his image he created them. That takes fortitude to adhere to. It takes fortitude to adhere to the truth that I'm not going to celebrate Pride Month because pride is a sin. And what Pride Month celebrates is a sin, an abomination. It takes fortitude to cling to your Christian beliefs when all the world comes against you. And if you're trying to cling to them in your own strength, it won't be enough. You need divine fortitude, divine might to assist you. And look, it's not just the things out there, it's the things in here, right? At our baptism we say that we will fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the world. How about the flesh and the devil? How about those sins that persistently dog you, that you can't seem to get out of? It takes the Holy Spirit's might to get you out of that. Not your own will. Or, how about those things of the devil, which truly do exist? We don't like to talk about that right now. But the truth is that there are spiritual realities constantly. There's principalities, there's, there's dark angels constantly trying to get you to screw up, to oppress you, to whisper things in your ear that are falsehoods. Right? You need the Holy Spirit's fortitude to withstand the world, the flesh, 
and the devil and to walk continually in the faith. The next one, godliness, sometimes called piety, is classically defined as emulating God. This is true, but for the Christian, there's another dimension of it. Because it's emulating God out of devotion or love. Our epistle today, Romans chapter 8, verse 15, St. Paul writes to the church and says that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, therefore we cry, Abba, Father. The gift of the Holy Spirit in piety or godliness is coming out of this type of love, the spirit of adoption, what one theologian calls a quickening or enlivening of love for our Heavenly Father. The idea is this, that as we grow, we love God more. And because we love Him more, we want to do more what He desires. It changes our appetites. I find myself no longer wanting that ice cream because I see that in addition to being a bad thing, it is something that's against God's will. You see the difference, right? And I want to please God. I want to please Him out of my love for Him. There's nothing to do with justification or salvation. It's not like I'm going to lose my salvation, right? But I want to please Him. So the gift of the Holy Spirit of godliness compels us in what St. Augustine calls a filial affection, a son-like affection for the Father. Finally, holy fear. Perhaps this is the most misunderstood of the sevenfold gifts. Some object that fear has no place for the Christian. They cite the idea that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And that's true. But holy fear is different because it flows out of godliness or piety. Holy fear is the type of fear which knows that each one of us will have to give an account, that there'll be a reckoning. In Romans 14, 12, we read, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And a Christian ought not to fear God for severe punishment or hell. That's not the point. That's a servile fear, right? The fear of a slave. But the Christian is to serve, is to fear God because he loves him. Again, it's tied together with this filial love. It's the idea that we don't want to displease him because he's our loving father and we love him that much. Think about human circumstances, right? You probably wouldn't use the word fear, but when you think of your father or your mother, you don't want to let them down, right? You don't want to disappoint them. The same might be true of a spouse or a good friend. And it's this kind of fear. One theologian calls it a holy anxiety. Now that's a weird word, right? We, we generally think of anxiety today as this medical condition that you know, is, is, is a terrible thing and paralyzes people. But he's using it in, in the sense that we have this anxiety that motivates us. It drives us to please God along with that filial love. It's a fear that's an aspect of reverence, love, and respect. And without it, we can't be good Christians. 
So in conclusion, we've heard a lot. Together, all of these seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to every Christian for his or her restructuring. Not remodeling, but restructuring. And it's important that you know, friend, if you've been baptized, you have these things. It's important that you know that you have these things on God's promise by his grace. Now, you can know that you have them and not engage them. That's the power of the will. And so we must engage our wills in obedience to God to not only have, but to work out our faith in these gifts so that we might attain the perfection that God wants us to attain by his grace. Always. But that we might want it and desire it. It's going on. The gifts are changing you. They're restructuring you whether you embrace them or not. But it's much better when you embrace them and understand them. And when you pray for them. Because they're continually poured out upon us to fill in our deficiencies. An analogy I've heard of is like the staves of a wooden bucket. You ever look at a wooden bucket? Right? It's got a stave, each, each piece, and then it's held together by the brass ring or whatever that's holding it together. But of course, the water only rises to the level of the lowest stave, right? If one of the staves is cut off, one of the pieces, the water is going to flow out on that piece. So the idea here is that the Holy Spirit rebuilds the bucket so that it holds more of God's grace so that we can do more in His kingdom. So when you feel weak, of will, or indifferent to God. Press in to the sevenfold gifts. Know that you've been assured of his rebuilding. And it's Jesus' promise to you personally, as well as to the church, that he will never leave you as an orphan in any situation or circumstance. You have the Holy Spirit. Let us embrace the gifts so that we might attain to the crown of righteousness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.